Good evening, everybody. So let me invite everyone to take your seats. We're on time departure, on time arrival. It is 7.59. And we're so, uh, first of all, I just want to thank everyone for coming out on a Thursday night in November. We want to thank Micha for being here tonight. Um, obviously, the events of the day make it, it's always great to have Micha. It's particularly great today to have Micha to explain our beloved Eretz Israel to us. So without further ado, Micha Goodman. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad I came to speak about Israel when times are so ordinary and boring <laughs> back in the Holy Land. So let's think about the past 48 hours, okay? In the past 48 hours, four things happened which have no precedence. One, Israel went in the largest massive attack that it ever did against Iranian targets in Syria. And at least 16 or 17 Iranian people died. That's a big deal. We have no idea what this means and where this will lead us. Okay, this is better? Right. Let's take two. Ladies and gentlemen, Micha Goodman. All right. Okay. Mike Pompeo comes out with his declaration, which is unprecedented, unprecedented, that the United States of America doesn't see settlements as a violation of the international law. This is unprecedented. And for the first time in Israeli history, we might be entering a third cycle of elections in one year. So we have a military situation which we don't know what's, where that's going to lead. A new diplomatic situation and then a very unstable political situation in Israel. So good luck with all of that. Now, I'll, I'll try to explain the way I understand what happened in Israel and why we're paralyzed politically. Israel is paralyzed politically. Is this working now? Is this all? Okay. So Israel is paralyzed politically. This is just a very simple analysis. If Lieberman would have agreed to sit in a coalition with Haredim, with the ultra-Orthodox, we'd have a government. If Lieberman would have agreed to sit in a coalition that is supported by Arabs, we'd have a government, a different government. He didn't agree. Why didn't he agree? Because he promises voters never to sit with the ultra-Orthodox and never to sit with the Arabs. If Netanyahu would have been willing not to sit with the ultra-Orthodox or with the religious right, we would have a government because then blue and white would sit with him. But he couldn't do that because he made a promise to his voters. Vote for me, he said to them, and not for your parties like the religious right, and I will never, never give them up. Come with me to any coalition. That's how he got many voters to vote for him. Benny Gantz, if Benny Gantz would have agreed 
to sit with Netanyahu in a government, we would have a government. But he didn't. You know why? Because he made his promise to all of his voters. He will never sit with Bibi because Bibi is corrupt and the whole narrative. So what do we have here? We're going to third elections because we couldn't, no one could create a government. And no one could create a government because no one wanted to break their promise to their voters. So here's the irony. 95, I don't know, I don't know why I'm saying 95, 99% of Israelis don't want elections. 99% of Israelis do not want us to go into a third cycle of elections. It's bad, it's very bad for the country. Government is paralyzed in a time where we need the government functioning. We have serious economic issues, serious military issues. We need a functioning government, and it's Dafka now. I don't know how to say Dafka in English, Dafka. But it's Dafka now. We don't have a functioning government. Israelis do not want a third, and no one wants. We want our politicians not to take us to a third elections. That's one thing we want from our politicians. A second thing we want for politicians is for them not to break their promise. <laughs> There's only one problem. <laughs> the only way for us to get that thing we want a government, not to go to elections, is for politicians to do that thing that we don't want them to do, which is to break their promise. So, the result is, because no politician was bold enough to break his promise to their voters, as a result, something is going to happen, a third elections that no one wants. How do we get to this paradox? How do we get to this? How did this happen? I think most Israeli politicians are afraid that elections are going to happen. And you don't want to go to elections after you violated your promise, after you broke your promise. If Israeli politicians were sure with absolute certainty that there is no elections, they'd feel comfortable to break their promise. But because they're afraid that maybe they'll, be, they'll break their promise, the other side won't. And the other side is thinking the exact same thing. This is classic prisoner's dilemma. This is classic games theory. So everybody's afraid that there might be elections. And if I'm going to elections, after I broke my promise, no one will vote for me. So here's what happened. Because all politicians were afraid that there'll be elections because of that fear, we have elections. <laughs> That's what happened. So that is just a simple analysis of Israeli politics. But a deeper way to think about Israeli politics is that if you look around and realize, wow, Israel is paralyzed, let's look at Europe. How are our British friends doing lately? <laughs> How are they doing? In Spain, they're entering now their fourth election cycle. At least we're better than Spain. The Brits are paralyzed. They're in this Brexit deadlock. Hey, maybe America's doing better. <laughs> so you ask yourself, when you are looking at the world, you realize maybe the best way to understand Israel is not to see Israel as a unique problem. Maybe it's a part of a larger problem. 
maybe the best way to understand Israeli political paralysis is to understand global polarization. I want to explain the phenomenon of polarization. Polarization, I'm now very influenced by the work of Jonathan, um, Jonathan Haidt. And he, um, he puts together, he shows some very interesting research. I'll be moving here now to show some research that explains what is polarization. So, in 1995, Americans were asked, how do you identify yourself? So let's say you say, I'm a Republican, I'm right-winger, I'm conservative, the whole thing. Then you ask, okay, great. If 100 is I'm in love and zero is I'm hate and I despise and 50 is I'm parv. How do you feel towards other Republicans? From zero to 100. In 1995, what's the average answer if you're Republican? Take a guess. 80. So if I'm a Republican, yes, this is what I feel towards other Republicans. How do you feel towards Democrats? 1995. What's the average answer? Okay, you like Republicans because you're Republican and you're right-winger and you love right-wingers. That's great. How do you feel towards Democrats? What do you think about liberals? In 1995, what's the average answer? 45. Okay. Let's think about this. Oh, Democrats are asked the same. What do Democrats feel towards Democrats? 75-ish. They like Democrats, but not as much as Republicans like Republicans. What do you think about Republicans? A little less than 45. So let's say, let's say it's more or less the same. In 1995, you love people that share your worldview and what do you think about people with the opposite worldview? Huh? You know, not crazy about them. Okay, 20 years past, the same thing, 2015. What are the answers today? What do Republicans think about, think about Democrats today? What do you think the number is? 6%. That's close to, I <laughs> that's close to extreme hatred. What do Republicans think, think about Democrats? It goes down to eight, okay? So this drop, this drop from 45 to six and eight, this drop in 20 years is polarization. There's another way to see polarization. Yes, it's a different, it's, it's Republican. Okay, how do you see yourself? I'm Republican. Oh, you're a Republican, that's great. So they show you like 20 classic Democratic policies, abortion, gay marriage, national security, taxation, gun control, different issues. Here's a question. How many Republicans could agree with 30% of positions of the Democrats? 35% Republicans can say, you know what? I see the light in that view and I'm a Republican. But the fact that I'm a Republican doesn't mean I automatically buy all the classic Republican positions. 1995, Democrats, there's about 30% of Democrats that have that same flexibility. I identify with the left, but that doesn't mean I agree 
automatically with every position of the left. What's the answer 20 years later? <laughs> How many right-wingers could identify with a few views of the left? How many left-wingers could agree with a few views of the right? It's now beneath 10%. What happened today? My identity defines my worldview. If I'm a leftist, I buy the entire package of the left. If I'm conservative, if I'm a right-winger, I buy the entire package. It comes in packages, which means we're not as free, we're not, we don't think as freely as we used to. We're in group thinking. Let's put these two, let's put these two poles together. What does that mean? What happened in 20 years? In 20 years, not only that we can't stand someone from the other side, we can't see the light in any views of the other side. That is polarization. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in England. It's happening in Poland. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in Argentina. It's happening in, in Hungary. So maybe when we think about Israel, intellectually speaking, we shouldn't look for the local problem that Israel has. Maybe there is something in the water. <laughs> if you see same phenomenon happening in different countries simultaneously in the world, one possibility, it's an amazing coincidence. Another possibility, that something is in the water. Something's happening. So, my so. What could be the explanation that we're more polarized than we ever were? Oh, Robert Putnam from here, from, from Harvard. His most recent, recent research is also about polarization. I heard a, 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 he gave a speech in England, I saw it on YouTube, and he gives something very interesting. In the 1950s, Americans were asked, would you feel comfortable if your son and daughter marry someone from a different race, different color? They were also asked, would you feel comfortable if your son or daughter marries someone with a different political worldview. So in the 50s, how many white people had, no, had a problem with their son or daughter marrying an African-American? You know what the, in the 1950s, how many people were said on the telephone when they were, that, that, they, that they might have a problem with that? 50%, 50-60%. How many Democrats had a problem that their son or daughter marries a Republican? Less than 10%. And vice versa. You know, the, you know what the numbers are today? Exactly the opposite. Less than 10% would say that they have a problem with their son and daughter marrying someone from a different race. That's right. But 50 to 60% of people have a problem with their son and daughter marrying a Republican or a Democrat. So America is so much more open when it comes to race and so much more closed when it comes to politics. So much more diverse, open-minded when it comes to so many issues, but so polarized when it comes over that issue. Who do you vote for? What do you believe in? What is your political view? So politics, now what happens when you're so polarized? You can't compromise. 
Because how dare you even imagine that you'll sit in the government with Netanyahu? How dare you even say? So if you can't, when you're polarized, you can't compromise. When you can't compromise, what happens? You're politically paralyzed. So if you want to ask why are we paralyzed politically, it's because we're polarized ideologically. Because the spirit of compromise is lost in a world where we expect our leaders to be pure and never to compromise, especially not with the other side. So if we want to understand why we're paralyzed, we have to understand why we are polarized. Which takes me to try to understand what is polarization. And I want to argue that polarization comes, a society that's polarized, it comes from minds that are polarized. What does it mean your mind is polarized? It's what I would call now the sickness of binary thinking. What is binary thinking? Binary thinking sounds like this. I was in France two weeks ago in a very interesting conference, and someone was saying that in certain circles in France and in Italy, if, let's say, somebody says, starts questioning if immigration is a good idea, just questioning, he or she are immediately branded as racists. Because you're asking questions about immigration, you're a racist. Or if somebody's questioning capitalism, you're communist. I know in Israel that if someone has doubts about the policy of the Israeli army, you're not a Zionist. What is binary thinking? What is either or thinking? This is how it looks like. If you're not completely on one side, what does that mean? I assume automatically you're on the other side. Now, what's the problem with binary thinking? Yes, the either or thinking. What happens when we're in either or thinking? So, let's say, give you an example from Israel. In Israel today, if let's say I express sympathy for Palestinians that are waiting in line in, uh, in how do you say, machsomim, in um, checkpoints? In checkpoints. I think they're suffering. They speak about their rights. Just the fact that I'm speaking that way, how am I seen automatically? Um, radical left, post-Zionist, unpatriotic. On the other hand, if I speak about how proud I am of the army, how patriotic I am, how excited I get when I hear the national anthem, how proud I am of our soldiers, automatically how the left sees that, sees that and what they assume, you probably have no sympathy for Palestinians and checkpoints. Why? Because if you're patriotic, you're less human, you're not a humanist. And if you're a humanist, you're not patriotic. You know why? Because that is the sickness of binary thinking. And you know what the problem is? Many times it's actually true. <laughs> Many times when I'm excited from my nation, I might not be very connected to humanity. And when I feel very connected to the family of nations, to humanity, I don't always feel very strongly connected to my nation because I am trapped in binary thinking. 
And I would like to think about what does the alternative to the either or thinking, how does that look like? And to think about the alternative to either or, to binary thinking, I want to introduce the Talmudic paradigm. How does the Talmud think about the truth? And I want to read this powerful, powerful source, which you all have in front of you. And this is a very famous source. I'm sure some of you have studied this a few times. I want to notice the concept of truth that the source is carrying and projecting. You all have this? Rabbi Abba, you have it? We're good? This is a source from Tractat Eruvin. In page 13. Rabbi Abba said that Shmuel said, this is a classic Talmudic move. Today we live in the world that people try to argue that my idea is my idea. No one ever said this before me. In the Talmud, they try to make a point that it's not my idea. Everyone said this before me. Because today we score points by being original, in the Talmud you lose points if you're original. You have to prove that it's not original. That's, you have, your, your idea is valid only if someone said it before you. So it's a different intellectual world. Rabbi Abba said, that Shmuel said, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed. First of all, I love this opening. There was an argument that lasted for three years. They were just arguing for three years. And no one left their room. They were just arguing for three years. No one was offended. They were just arguing for three years. These said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. And these said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. What does halacha mean? Seven times God appeared to Abraham. Four out of the seven, he told them, Start walking. Start walking. The first revelation to Abraham, what did he say to him? Lech lecha, move on. And then he says to him, Kum vehitalech ba'aretz. Walk around Eretz Yisrael. After he tells them to walk to Eretz Yisrael, he tells them to wander around Eretz Yisrael. And then he said to him one time, Hitalech lefanai vehiyetamim. Walk in front of me, Abraham. And the fourth time, Another lech lecha. This time to where? To the Akedah. What is halacha? God calls human beings, calls us, to move, to walk. Halacha is our response. We're on the move. We're moving. We are walking. Halacha. Now it's very interesting you know, that halacha is about moving. It's dynamic. It's very interesting because what is the founding in, in the ancient Chinese tradition, the Tao? What does the Tao mean? Does anybody know? It means the way. That sounds like halacha, right? What is the founding category of Islam? What is the halacha of Islam? What is it called? 
Sharia. What does Sharia mean? It's a way. So we have here ancient traditions, Judaism, Taoism, Islam, that share an intuition that life as opposed to the way Westerners see life, in the West it's about what you achieve. In ancient traditions, life is not about, it's not measured by what you've achieved, but by the path you've walked on. So now there's a, so, so I think you should be like this. Beit Shammai is saying, walk on our path. Beit Hila said, no, walk on our path. For three years, what's the path you walk on? What's the halacha? For three years. I want to notice it's not a disagreement about any specific halacha. It's not about, you know, Hanukkah candles. You know, there's a big, famous machloket between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about Hanukkah candles. You know this, right? Where Beit Hillel says, you know, actually, there's a larger disagreement between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about the value of living. Beit Shammai were pessimists, radical pessimists. They say, Tov lo adam shelo nivra yoter mishenivra. It's better not to be born than to be born. You're better off not living. Beit Shammai actually said this. You know what Beit said? It's better to be born <laughs> than not to be born. It's better to live than not existing. So they have two different worldviews. Both worldviews expressed in Chanukah, right? Because how did Beit Shammai see Chanukah? How did Beit Hila say Chanukah? So Beit Shammai said, you start with eight candles. And the next day, what do you do? Seven candles. The next day, six candles. <laughs> Beit Shammai are pessimists. Every day there's less light. Beit Hila optimist. You start with one light. And then two. And the light grows. So they have two different worldviews, two different halacha. But this disagreement is not about a specific halacha. It's a disagreement about what? The entire package, all the halacha. So this is a massive, massive argument of two ways of looking at life, two ways of experiencing life, the Hillel school and the Shammai school. So ultimately, I'm continuing to read, a divine voice emerged. How does it say in Hebrew, a divine voice? Batkol, a daughter of a voice. Batkol. It's like an echo, isn't it? And the daughter of a voice, maybe a best way to think of it, is an echo, right? There's a voice that gives birth to another voice. So we have like an echo of revelation is heard in the Bet Midrash where they're having the disagreement. And what is the divine, the echo of divine voice saying? Emerged and proclaimed, both these and those are the words of the living God. Is it... Imagine two people arguing, one saying capitalism, the other saying socialism. And then we hear God's voice, what does he say? Capitalism and socialism are the words of the living God. Imagine somebody say, we have to leave the West Bank. Someone else says, we have to stay in the West Bank. God says, we have to, I want you to leave the West Bank. I want you to settle the West Bank, right? God's voice is, that both views, which are opposite views, they are both the words of the living God. Now, why is this moment a very important moment? For two reasons. One, 
when we speak about polarization, when we think about polarization, so classically speaking, when God enters politics, when God enters a conversation, it increases polarization. Why does it increase polarization? Because let's say me and Rabbi West are having an argument about settlements in the West Bank. And at some moment in the argument, I call, I'm asking God to be involved. How do I do that? I quote a verse from Leviticus. Once I quoted a verse from Leviticus to prove that I am right, what did I just say to Rabbi Wes? God thinks I'm right. Now that gives me a great advantage in the conversation, right? Because if God thinks I'm right, first of all, I am a very lucky person. Because my views, my opinions happen to be God's opinions, which is an amazing coincidence. There's 7 billion people in the world, but my opinions are God's opinions. Now, whenever, whenever anybody that thinks that your opinions are God's opinions, now I can't listen to anyone. Because now Les, Wes, Rabbi Wes, is not disagreeing with me. Who's he disagreeing with? God. And he's disagreeing with God, so I can't listen to him. All I can do is what? Fight him. So involving God in politics deepens polarization. What leads a lot of people to think the way to cure democracy is, is to take God out of our conversations, that they got out of our politics, that they got out of our democracies. But here, the Talmud offers us another way of thinking about it. God could ruin our conversation and polarize our societies. God is the problem. But according to the Talmud, God is also the solution. Why is God also the solution? Because it turns out God thinks I'm right, but God also thinks that Rabbi West is right. God thinks that the right-wingers are right. Now, so now, when I realize that God thinks I'm right, God thinks that the opposite view is right, now God is not a polarizing force. Now God is a force that creates, that constructs listening. So... So that's one reason why this is important. But it's, I think it's important for another reason, this source. I'm continuing to read. A divine verse emerged and proclaimed both these and those are the words of the living God. However, the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Bet Hillel. I want to realize what happened to me here. This is what's, what's important about this, about, about, about this source. God is saying, you're both right. But halacha is not in accordance with both. Halacha is in accordance with Betilil. What does that mean? That there could be a gap between the truth and reality and practicality. You could say, I see the light in socialism. There's a light in socialism, there's a value in socialism. There's depth in socialism. There's truth in socialism. I see the light in capitalism. There's depth and truth in capitalism. But if I stay there, what could happen to me? You're paralyzed. What is the Batkol saying? Theoretically, they're both right. Practically, only one side should be lived practically. Is it possible to live in a world where in your mind you understand that both sides are right, but practically you're living only in accordance to one side? 
Is it possible to realize that liberals are right, conservatives are right, and I choose to live as a conservative or to live as a liberal while I know in my mind that both sides, that they're opposite, they're in conflict, they're both right. I'm living according to one, but I am thinking according to two. Is it possible to live in a gap between a rich intellectual world and a narrow practical world? Is that possible? This is one of the, one of the big fears. There's a, a, in, in the history of philosophy, there was a, a, um, a, um, a, a experiment, a thought experiment that's called the donkey of Boyden. And it goes like this. Assuming that animals have instincts that push them to food. So you put a donkey in a room and you put um, food or how do you say, like um, hay, a, a stack of hay in one side of the room and a similar stack of hay on the other side of the room and the donkey is exactly in the middle. What will happen to the donkey? What? He'll die. He'll die. He won't die because there wasn't food in the room. He will starve because he's paralyzed by choice. People are always afraid that if you'll see the truth on both sides, you'll be paralyzed, and for good reason. The art of this Mishnah is to see, is, it's, it's, a, it's art, this is the, the art. On the one hand, to see light in both sides and not to be paralyzed and then to choose one side. Because there's two problems. If, in order to choose a side, you have to demonize the other side, that's a thought that the only way to be active is to have binary thinking. One side is right, the other side is wrong. That creates, or the alternative, both sides are right and I'm not active. So either I am active, but have binary thinking, demonizing the other opinion, or I have what I want to call now holistic thinking, seeing the light in both sides, but not active, being paralyzed. Is it possible to live in the art of living of the bat kol, of the divine verse in this source? to see the light in both sides, but not to live according to both sides, to live according to one side. I want to imagine how this looks like. Let's say I see the light in the left and in the right. I understand that staying, for example, that if Israel stays in the West Bank, it's violating human rights of Palestinians. And we shouldn't do that. And I think that the left is right. I mean, you know what I mean. And I think that I also see the light in the right-wing opinion. If we leave the West Bank, we're turning our backs to our identity, to our heritage, to our history, to our memories, to the Bible. And I see the light in both sides. And after I'm persuaded by both sides, I decide I'm a right-winger. Okay. It was tough, but I did the move of the bat kol, seeing the light in both sides, and not doing the shortcut, demonizing one side in order to choose a side, but not doing that, not demonizing one side in order to choose, but holding the contradiction and then choosing. If I did that, 
Now I'm meeting a left-winger. And I'm speaking to a left-winger. <laughs> Could be someone else, okay? <laughs> okay. And he's presenting his left-wing arguments. What am I doing now? I'm truly listening to him or her. Why am I truly listening to him or her? Because they're echoing a voice I have inside of me. So, but if I, so that is, if I'm a holistic right winger, I'm a right winger that saw the light in the left, saw the right in the right, and then the move of the bat kol, of the divine voice of the Mishnah, and chose the right, now I'm listening to the left. And if the left is also a holistic left winger as opposed to a binary left winger, he's now listening to me because everything I'm saying, he has in him. I'm echoing the voice inside of him. Now we have a real conversation. But what happens if I'm a binary right winger? If I'm not willing to listen to the, to the left wing voice I have inside of me? Now I'm listening to a left winger and I have to see the worst and everything she or she is saying. Why do I have to, psychologically speaking, why do I have to see the worst and everything that he or she is saying? Why do I have to do that? So they won't awaken the left wing voice I have in me. So I won't be paralyzed by, by seeing the truth on both sides. I want to notice the price we pay for binary thinking. What's the price that we pay? It's a triple price. If, if my assumption is I'm a left-winger because the right is completely wrong and demonized and I reject it, that's why I'm a left-winger. Or I'm a right-winger because I, I demonize the left. It's not that I saw the light in both sides and chose. I see the light in one side and therefore I don't choose. If I'm, the price of binary thinking is triple. One, intellectually speaking, my world shrinks. People that are binary thinkers have a tendency to read books that support their views, to listen to podcasts that support their views, to go to evenings and lectures and listen to a lecture that is saying exactly what they think anyway. We are in filter bubbles. And by the way, this is a common, common, natural human behavior. We love our views. As Daniel Kahneman said once, we love our views for the same reason we love our children. Because they're ours. They're our opinions. And we are attracted to our opinions. We have, and there's nothing that gives us more joy than hearing somebody else saying out loud, the opinions that we already have. And there is something that we can't stand to listen to somebody expressing the opinion that we despise, that we reject. So if you're a binary right-winger, a binary left-winger, your intellectual world shrinks. Let's think about your social world. What happens to your social world? It shrinks also. If you're a left-winger, you don't like hanging around with right-wingers in a polarized world. Socially, your world shrinks. Psychologically, your world shrinks. Why does it shrink? Because now I have to deny and quiet down and use internal right violence to repress the right-wing view, the right-wing impulse I have inside me. So
so my intellectual world shrinks, my social world shrinks, my internal world shrinks. That's the price we pay for binary thinking. So, so here's a question I have. Is it possible to reconstruct holistic political thinking? Of seeing the truth on both sides, but not living according to both sides, living according to one? Can I be a liberal activist that gives money to the Democratic Party and supports Democratic uh, uh, candidates and goes to rallies? Practically, I'm a liberal, but intellectually, I read books by Republicans, listen to podcasts by conservatives, listen to Jordan Peterson. I, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm, my intellectual world contains both sides, but my practical world is one side. Is that possible to live that gap? I'm asking you, is it possible or is this naive? Is this naive? Because I want, I, want I want to say something. You know what? Before I, I want to start taking this back to Israel. I want to take this to Israel. I want to notice that Israel is different. I want to notice what happened the last elections in Israel. All over the world, where there is a phenomenon that people see as very right-wing, populist, nationalistic, what we have is always a strong left-wing reaction. Like look at England. There is very strong popu uh, popular nas nationalistic Voices rising in England that led to Brexit. What's the reaction in England? Corbyn. Radical left. I hope this is not too sensitive. Look, look at what's happening in America. The Democratic Party is going, parts of it, very much to the left, reacting, responding to what they see as the rise of populist right. This is, we see in Brazil, in Poland, in Spain, we see... When you have a phenomenon that's extreme to one side, what happens? The reaction is to the extreme of the other side. What happened in Israel? We had a growing national right, growing in power, and in its boldness, and it's do doing things that it never did before. And how did Israelis respond? They didn't go to the radical left, they went to the center. The Israeli reaction to the right wasn't to go to the extreme left, but to go to the moderate pragmatic center. Kacholavan, blue and white, is a unique Israeli reaction to what was seen as extremism. This is different than the way the British and the Americans and the Sp Spanish are reacting to, to what is seen at least as extremism. The move the move to the center as a reaction to extremism. So that's, I think, a very impressive Israeli move. But then you ask yourself, wow, that's interesting. What is the center in Israel saying? What is it saying? Um, well, he's tall. <laughs> and he's not Bibi. What is the center in Israel saying? So on the one hand, in Israel, have the impressive Phenomena that we didn't go to the extreme left as a response for the right becoming more extreme. We went to the center. That is a very unique Israeli phenomenon. But on the other hand, here's the problem in Israel. The problem is that we have the center is growing in its power. But it's not growing in its ideology. We have many, many people voting for blue and white and many more people that identify as centrists. It's the growing 
popular move in Israel to identify as a centrist. But yes, but what does it mean to be a centrist? Nobody really knows. So this is a very interesting phenomenon in Israel. The asymmetry between the popularity of the center and the clarity of the center. The power of the center and the passion of the center. Not a lot of passion, but a lot of power. If you want to understand what is the center in Israel, I'll try to explain this. This is a little bit cynical, but I think it's a fact. In Israel, many Israelis developed an allergic reaction to Bibi Netanyahu. Many Israelis, you say the word Bibi and they have an allergic reaction. Many Israelis have an allergic reaction to the left. Because of the second intifada, because of many reasons, many Israelis have an allergic reaction to the left. Now I have a question. What happens to all the Israelis that suffer from both allergic reactions? Who are they? Who do they vote for? Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz, or Blue and Whites, the party that gained most traction in the past elections, the Israelis that voted for Blue and White are the ones that can't stand BB, can't stand the left, so what do you do? Blue and White. Which means it's not a positive vote. What is it? It's just the only vote that was possible. Here's my question. Is it possible to be a positive centrist? A passionate centrist? Can we bridge the gap between the power of the center, a lot of power, not a lot of ideas? In order, what I want, this is what we're trying to do in Israel. And in order to bridge that gap, that gap, that important gap we have in the Israeli center, where so many Israelis want to be centrist, but nobody knows what it means to be centrist. I want to try to, re, I want to offer the following, reframing. Being a centrist doesn't mean you are parve, compromised, in between both sides. That's the classic understanding, the parve, not charismatic understanding of the center. I want to offer a different understanding of the center. Maybe the center is not the middle, maybe it's the whole. The holistic center. The center that could realize that both sides are right. It doesn't mean our policies are according to both sides. But it does mean that we do see the light and the truth in both sides. Which means if you're willing to go with me to the holistic center as opposed to seeing the center as the middle but to see center as holistic... Elu ve'elu, these and those, are, how does it go? Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, these and those are the words of the living God. If you're willing to think about the holistic center, do you know what that means? Instead of thinking of the people in the center as the people that believe less, because it's the extremists that believe. In the center we believe less, maybe it's the other way around. In the center we believe more. Why do we believe more? Because we believe in the right and in the left. We believe we're the greatest believers. We believe both. And where will that take us? Where does, where, where does that take us? It takes us to politics that's not binary politics. Let me try to put down the two great dilemmas that are 
tearing Israel apart. One is about the future of the West Bank. The second is the relationship between synagogue and state in Israel. I want to tell you something. I want to share with you two ideas that most Israelis will agree. When we think in binary thinking, so we come to the conflict and we say, oh, there's only two options. The option of BBL selling, let's not do anything about the conflict. Let's just keep things where they are. What's called managing the conflict. Sustain the status quo. Then there's the idea of the left. Let's end the conflict by building two states, which will obviously, obviously will be liberal democracies living side by side in peace and harmony. Now, here's the truth. What are the chances that we'll have two states that will both be functioning democracies living in peace with each other? What are the chances? Most Israelis think that if you'll say that to an Israeli, he'll think you're weird. Just so you know, he'll think you're weird. What are the chances that the status quo is sustainable? It's not. So we have, but why do we think we have only two options? It's weird, and I know, I know I've spoke about this here, but please allow me to repeat, to repeat myself, okay? The thought that we have two options is a reason, it's, it's not because we have two options, it's because you're trapped in binary thinking. Your mind tells you you have two options, either to solve the conflict or to keep things the way they are. Imagine someone would tell you that crime is bad, so we have to solve crime. And you figure out a way to end crime. And the alternative would be, let's not keep that crime. Let's keep things the way they are. That's weird, right? Or someone would say, I have an idea how we could end car accidents. And the other party is saying, no, let's, we can't end car accidents. That's naive, so let's just not, let's keep things the way they are. That's weird. When it comes to crime, when it comes to car accidents, it's obvious to us there's a third option. We're not, what's, the th what's the real option? What do we try to do? Reduce the amount of car accidents. We, don't, we can't end it, but we still try to do something. When it comes to the conflict, if we can't end the conflict, it doesn't mean we're passive about the conflict. It means we could shrink the conflict. Israel could shrink the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We can't end it, but we shouldn't keep it the way, the way it is. We could shrink the conflict. This is an idea that most Israelis can agree on. And you know who wants to shrink, the, who thinks we could shrink the conflict? People that realize that the right is right. A complete withdrawal from the West Bank threatens Israel's security. People that think that the left is right. If we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening Israel's national majority. And if they're both right, what do we do? We're not paralyzed. We could be pragmatic. How do we shrink the conflict? Let me offer another idea. Another idea. This is an idea that 70% of Israelis will agree. The relationship between synagogue and state in Israel. Most Israelis already realize that religious legislation is not healthy for, for, for democracy. But here's the thing. It's not only not healthy for democracy. You know what it's not healthy also for? For Judaism. Here's a fact. 99% of Israelis perform Brit Milah. I mean, not the woman, of the boys. Perform Brit Milah. 99%. You know what we don't have in Israel? A law 
that forces Israelis to circumcise their sons. We don't have a law. So it's interesting, you know, there's this radical movements against circumcision. We have that in Israel. Somebody had an idea. The best way to get Israelis not to circumcise their, their kids is to what? Let's legislate a law that forces them to do that. And then they won't want to do that anymore. You know, have you ever been in Yom Kippur in Israel? It's very powerful. Israelis don't drive. There isn't one law. There isn't one law that says you're not allowed to drive. But Israelis don't do that. And Yom Kippur is very powerful in Israel. If someone would legislate that, they will start driving in Yom Kippur. You know, there is a Mishnah in Masechet Avot where it says, Ehovet HaMelacha, love working, v'snait HaRabanut, and hate the rabbinate. <laughs> is, that's one mitzvah that Israelis really love practicing. That's a nice thing. It's one mitzvah that Israelis actually, it actually means rabbinate in the Mishnah. It means power, but in Israel it means, it means the, the religious establishment. So Israelis, now, and in, in, in the, you know, Alexis de Tukvail, de Tukvail, the important French philosopher, when he came to America, he noticed two things. One, Americans, and this is the 19th century, one, Americans love their religion. Two, there's a solid separation between church and state in America. He's asking, how is it possible that America separates religion from state and Americans love their religion? And his answer was, it's not that Americans love their religion, although there's separation. Americans love their religion because of separation. This was his analysis. The Tukvah's analysis was the following, that people have a natural rejection of power and authority. And they always don't like politicians and government. That's healthy in a democracy. What happens when you attach political power to religion? So the hatred towards political power will spill over to religion. That was the Tukvah's theory. Israel proves he was right. 72 years of using political power to promote religion has not done good for politics and has done much worse for religion. Israelis, when they feel like it's, it's somebody's trying to push it down their throat, they have an allergic reaction towards this. On the other hand, so we use, there's a lot of religious legislation in Israel. And then there's another thing that's lacking. Jewish education in the secular system is extremely basic. And you could be a graduate of the Israeli secular system with not knowing what a Talmud is, not hearing about Rashi, not being able to read Rashi, not a lot of knowledge. Here's a deal that 70% or maybe 80% of Israelis will agree on. Here's the deal. Much more education and a lot less legislation. More Judaism, less power. Now here's the thing. Religious people won't feel like they're compromising when there's less legislation, and secular people won't feel like they're compromising when there's more education. Of course, people will say, on the real left, will say, how can you teach Judaism in our schools? And on the right, how can you give up the laws that, you know, in Israel, you're not allowed to buy chametz and stuff like that in Pesach. That shouldn't be, that, that should, it should be a free market. So here's the thing. When it comes to the two great dilemmas that are tearing Israel apart, 
The future of the West Bank? Religion and state? When you come from holistic thinking, there's real compromises that most Israelis would agree about these compromises. So you ask yourself, and here's two facts about Israelis that you should know. Fact number one, when Israelis asked, what do you think about, you know, questions of the West Bank and so forth and so on, Israelis are in the center. Most Israelis are for a political, territorial compromise. Not a complete withdrawal, not Jordan Valley, not Jerusalem, but they are for a territorial compromise, not the classic view of the religious right. When you ask Israelis, what do you think about religion and state? Almost all Israelis want higher degrees of separation between religion and state. But then you ask Israelis, how do you identify? And almost all Israelis identify as right-wingers. There's an interesting gap in Israel. Their identity is to the right. The policies they believe in is to the center. You know what this means? This means that if elections are about policy, Bibi loses. If they're about identity, he wins. You know who understands this more than anyone else? Bibi. The election is always about vote for your tribe, vote for your identity. Forget about policy. <laughs> vote for your identity. You know the best way how to make an election about your tribe? To create friction between tribes. To polarize. And that's how, and there's obviously irony here. Because identity politics was invented by the left, and that is what is keeping BB in power. But if, but if you belong not to the tribe that demonizes the other tribe, but the tribe that sees the light in both tribes, then, then my argument is you don't become paralyzed when you think about policies, you actually become more creative when you think about policies. You know why? Why are you more creative and more pragmatic and not paralyzed? Because if you see the light on both sides, you know what you could do when you build a solution? You could take the best for both sides. Because it's not tame. How do you say tame? It's not a taboo to take an idea from the leftists or from the right-wingers. There's actually more room to move you could create interesting combinations. So my argument is that holistic thinking that sees the light of both sides could, paralyze, could create paralyzed politics. It could also create practical politics. I tried to show how practical politics could look with shrinking the conflict, creating a new covenant between religious and secular people in Israel of more education, less legislation. Most Israelis would agree on all this. And finally, and with this a lens, and open this up for questions. When we think about binary thinking, binary thinking is not only about ideas, it's also about people. And the interesting thing is if you follow what Israelis are arguing about the past three elections, we're not arguing about ideas, we're not arguing about policies. What are Israelis arguing about the past three elections? This is very sad that this is what Israelis are arguing about. What are they arguing about? A person. The character of one person. 
It's not about ideologies, not about policies. It's about a personality. And even here, we're in binary thinking. Some people say is Netanyahu is the Mashiach. And some people say that Netanyahu is the Satan. He's everything that's bad about Israel is Netanyahu. And what about saying and thinking that Netanyahu is a great person, has great achievements, and he has deep problems and a lot of flaws? Maybe Netanyahu is not the ultimate good, all the ultimate bad. Because you know how we know Mo because when we look at the people that we love and we look inside our soul, what do we see? We're holistic. We see all sides. Suddenly, when we look at our leaders, what do we see? Either it's perfect or demonized. So even our conversation about the person, we're trapped in binary thinking. To summarize, we're paralyzed because we're polarized. We're polarized because we're trapped in binary thinking. The Talmud offers us an alternative, holistic thinking. Not the holistic thinking that paralyzes you like the donkey of Boydin. If both sides are right, you're paralyzed. But the holistic thinking that after you realize that both sides are right, you still choose a side. The Christians speak about a leap of faith. I think the Talmud is introducing a leap of action. Both sides are right, and then you choose Beit Shammai or Beit Hilel or something in the middle. And the combination of holistic thinking and pragmatic policies, it might be the way to think about a passionate center. It's not a contradiction in terms. It seems like a contradiction in terms because as you know, extremists have passion. The people in the center are parv. What I'm trying to build in Israel is a passionate center to bridge the gap between the power of the center and the poverty of ideas in the center. And I have a question. Who here ever visited an Ein Prat when you were in Israel? Okay. Okay. So whoever did knows, knows, you've seen a phenomenon of young Israelis which have the following characteristic. Around the world, when people are passionate and active, usually they're angry. The emotion that brings people to action is anger. And the flip side is that young people that are not angry are not active. They're indifferent. In Israel, you could see, as Ein Prat shows and proves, that you could be very passionate and not angry. To be active and not angry. And by the way, not naive. Not naive. They realize that not everything is perfect, but positive. But positive. And that is the force. Like the holistic ideology and people like the people that ain't brought. It's a force that I believe could help cure a conversation. And Israel is a good candidate of building a passionate center. Because of the uniqueness of Israeli politics, they responded to the right, not with the extreme left, but with the center. All we have left is taking the center and filling it with ideas and with passion because the attractiveness of the center already exists in Israel and that's why Israel is unique and maybe Israel could show the way for the rest. Thank you very much.
Mira, thank you so much. What we'll do is we will take two questions. Okay. And then we'll call it a night. So, uh, John, take the first question. Short questions, please. Two, and then we're done. That was a wonderful talk, Mika. You mentioned four things that have happened in the last 48 hours. You only named three of them. Something else happened today. Would you care to talk about that? That'll be both questions. <laughs> yes, this is, um, you're talking about the Netanyahu. That news came here, it got here? Yeah. yeah. Wait. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. See, what, what uh, I, just, I just want to say two things about this. One, according to the Constitution that we don't have, Here's how it goes. There's elections, and then the president, President Rivlin, gives one side the mandate. He gave Bibi the mandate. He has 28 hours to form a coalition. He failed. Now Rivlin gives it to Gantz. He has 28 hours, 28 days to form a coalition. He fails. It goes back to, to Rivlin. And now we're doing 21 days where any MK out of 120 MKs could try to form a coalition. Anyone. One of the Arabs, one of the Haredim, anyone. So it's, and anyone can. So it's 21 days of, you know, anything goes. Free fall, you know, anything goes. 21 days. And Israel never entered these 21 days. It never happened before. It's unprecedented. And there was like a hope that maybe, obviously it will be, the candidates out of those 120 are still Gantz and Netanyahu. And maybe right before elections, someone will break his promise to the voters in order to, in order to avoid elections that none of the voters wants. And right, it will happen like right before you, you, we reach the cliff. This news about Netanyahu probably shuts down that chance. So that's, first of all, the political implication of that. Because now Gantz definitely can't sit with Netanyahu. And now Netanyahu is becoming so, so, um, his rhetoric is becoming so extreme. He gave his speech today, so extreme. He's rejecting everything. So the chance that these 21 days could save us from a third elections, that chance was probably destroyed by the news you heard today. The second problem with the news you heard today this is a real threat to Israel. I don't want to go into this now too much, but because Netanyahu, we respond to Netanyahu with binary thinking, either you admire him or you despise him. So it's a real coincidence. All the people who despise Netanyahu think that he's guilty. And all the people who admire him, it's just a coincidence. They read the evidence and they think um, he didn't do anything. It's just interesting. It's just a coincidence that they just happen to like Netanyahu, but objectively, they think he's innocent. And the people who hate him, objectively, they think, oh, of course, he's corrupt. So it's not that the facts define what you think about Netanyahu. It's that what you think about Netanyahu defines how you read the facts in a, in, in a polarized world. But this is going to be very, very bad because... So he's going to go to court, and, and if they... If he goes to jail, you'll have 50% of the Israelis that will stop believing in the legal system. And if he doesn't, 50% of Israelis will stop believing in this legal system. 
So Zionism, the stability of Israel depends on the fact that people believe in the basic institutions of democracy, the legal system being one of them. And now that 50% of Israelis feel like this is Dreyfus. I'm not making up this word. Yeah? And they feel like you can't throw away Netanyahu through election, so you're using the legal process to do that. But that, that might sound familiar, by the way. That you, yes? So, so, yeah, so this is, so this is bad for, for this is, so, so we're in trouble for both reasons. One, this might mean that we're really entering a third elections. And two, this is really threatening to the, mo- the capital of democracy is trust. The fact that we trust that the system works. And I believe that the system works. I truly believe in the Israeli court system. It's a very... But the trial of Netanyahu, on both, whatever the outcome will be, is going to crack that trust. And Israel doesn't have the privilege to lose its trust in... in it's, we're, 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 we are a weak... We, we, we don't realize how weak we are, how fragile we are. And messing with this, messing with our trust, is not something healthy. So, so this is not good news. This is really not good news. So, um, can you just end on some hopeful note? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, think about it. Here's, here's the thing. Most Israelis are not obsessing about politics. Like I say, my students in Ain Prat, they're like, yeah. They're about building Israel and not arguing about the politics of Israel. So there is a very positive, it's not like you see young people in America, they're always angry. Israelis are not that angry. So if there are positive forces in Israel, and I think the idea of the idea, the attempt to build a passionate center, a center that will shrink the conflict but not end it, a center that will heal Judaism and democracy, a center that is positive and yet passionate. I think a, pa- a growing passionate center in Israel, I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen. I'm saying it could happen and we have a chance. So one last thing. Just tell folks here about Yom Kippur in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay. And that then is, we'll end with that. Okay. Yeah, Yom Kippur is this in interesting for everyone, Yom Kippur in Jerusalem? Okay, so let me just say what, so, so in, 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 he's talking about um, our, um, our Ain Prat Passionate Center movements has um, 70% secular, 30% religious, and they don't think that Judaism is supposed to divide them. They don't think that Judaism is part of the problem. They think Judaism is part of the solution, and good evidence to that is what happened in Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, in Jerusalem, they took a basketball stadium, about, about 40 volunteers, a week beforehand, volunteers to turn a basketball stadium into a synagogue. About 1,400 young Israelis came to pray. Here's how they pray. There is a mechitza into the middle of the stadium, which means you have men, women, and together. You don't have a chazan or a chazanit in the middle. You have a choir. So you have a group leading the service, and anyone sets where they're comfortable. If you're secular, mechitza is weird for you, you sit with your girlfriend where it's together. If you're from, you feel uncomfortable sitting where it's, together, where, it's, where it's mixed, you sit in the men's side, in the women's side. This is an attempt to create, to reinvent Judaism in Israel. And here's the thing, very secular people pray very passionately. 
Very religious people are very open-minded for anything happen, including, by the way, including rooms of the side where people don't pray, but they do yoga, meditation, learning, and, and there is a room very far away where there's food in case you're not fasting. It's religious people. We, we like to think, we like to think that the original sin of religious Israelis is the sin of dogmatism, of being closed-minded. And the original sin of secular Israelis is a sin of ignorance, of not knowing a lot about Judaism. And there's really a phenomenon, phenomenon, a growing phenomenon, where religious Israelis are much less dogmatic and more open-minded. And secular Israelis want to erode their ignorance, know more about Judaism, and connect themselves to Judaism. And young people, we had 1,400 of these people. Some people say it's the largest tefillah of young people in Israel. Now, that's interesting. Usually, it's people, organizations like Chabad, that are passionately religious, that attract large crowds. Is it possible that people that are not passionately religious, but passionate centrists, that can attract large crowds? Yes, in Israel it's possible because the center is attractive. It could be attractive, not if it's the center of the middle, not here, not there, but the holistic center that is also here and also there. Micha, thank you so much. 8.30 Shabbos morning. Micha will be in Reisman at 8.30. He's going to teach us the book of Jonah, 8.30 Shabbos morning. Micha, thank you so much. Thank you.